Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Dude, you ever see a family picture and think, bullcrap? I'm calling bullcrap. That is fake news. Yeah, you're not alone in this. Elder Stevenson tells a, a, a story about his family taking a family portrait. And he, he shows the family portrait, and it looks amazing. He says, if this picture were taken today, it would be posted and present a family of our four lovely, well-behaved boys, color-coordinated and enjoying a harmonious family photo opportunity together. Then he says, you want to hear the real story? He says, I, I still remember the phone call from Lisa. He sa- she says, Gary, where are you? We're here at the photographer's outdoor studio. We're all ready to shoot. It hasn't been easy getting the boys all dressed, coordinated, and ready. Are you nearly here? Well, I'd forgotten, and I hadn't left the office yet. I was a half hour late, and things had not gone so well in my absence, bordering on chaos. What had happened? Well, my oldest son had been running through the yard and found an apple tree picked some apples, and began throwing them at the other boys. He hit our third son in the back with an apple and made him fall down, so that son started to cry. Meanwhile, as that was happening, my second oldest son sat down with his pants, and his pants went uh, up a little bit, and the other kids saw that his socks were white athletic socks, not the church socks that Lisa had laid out for him to wear. She asked, why didn't you wear your church socks? He says, well, I don't like them. They're scratchy. And while she's talking to him, our two-year-old son, Kyle, is running through the yard, trips on something, falls down, and bloodies his nose. Now, there is blood dripping down onto his white turtleneck shirt and is completely stained. This is when I showed up, and the only way to salvage the picture was to reverse the turtleneck, uh, putting it on backwards to hide the blood stains from the camera. As it turns out, while Craig was running around throwing apples, he fell down and got a huge grass stain on the knee. So in the picture, his arm is strategically placed covering up the grass stain. And the third son, well, we had to wait 20 minutes so his eyes were no longer red from crying. And of course, Kyle's blood stains are now on the back of the shirt. Brian, well, he now has his hand... uh, Oh, we did that part. Sorry. And and as for me, well, Gary is in the doghouse because it was my late arrival that was the trigger for all of this. Uh, Elder uh, Anderson goes on, Sorry, Elder Stevenson. Man, we're two minutes in and I'm botching this. Elder Stevenson. He he says... He says, when you see this beautiful picture of our family anyway and lament, why can't I get things together and be a picture-perfect family like theirs? You know better. Man, I love this story. I love the realness to, to Elder Stevenson talking about this. And I love the realness of the biblical authors that give us real families. Like, let's take a minute today and look at a real family, a real messy family that is still saved by Jesus. Here's how the story starts in Genesis 26. Esau was 40 years old, and he took to wife Judith and Bash-Hemath. How about that to name your daughter? Both of whom are Hittites. And they are a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. And Rebekah in the next chapter says to Isaac, I am weary of my life. Because of the daughters of Heth, meaning her daughter and daughters-in-law. 
If Jacob, the other twin son, takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? Um, and that's strong words from a mother-in-law, right? I am weary of my life because of them. So Isaac goes to Jacob and, and blesses him and charges him and says, I don't want you to marry any girls here and any Hittites around Canaan. Basically, he's like, I, I don't want to cause your mother any more stress. I love her. So I want you to go to Padan Aram and take a wife from thence. And if you do, God will bless you uh, uh, to be fruitful and multiply you and make you a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham. Um, And so basically, with this full blessing, Jacob goes on his way to Padan Aram to uh, his mom, Rebecca's families, basically is the intent. And needless to say, um, he doesn't leave Esau on the best of terms. Esau is basically ready to stab him in the face for the deception he pulled off. It's not good terms, basically, that he takes off. Anyways, Jacob is heading up to Padan Aram to the singles ward, more or less, is how he sees it, to find himself a wife that his parents will approve of and be happy of. So when he shows up outside of the city, there's this well covered by a heavy stone, and there's these three flocks of sheep waiting around to be watered. And he goes up and he strikes up a conversation with the shepherds, asking if they know his mom's family. And they say, yeah, in fact, behold, Rachel, his daughter, Laban's daughter, come up with the sheep. And he sees her and 80s music plays in the background. Her hair blows boom, 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 boom. I don't know what's going on here, but th- this boy is smitten. Step one, day one, he likes this girl. And so he walks up and takes the initiative and rolls the heavy stone off the well. Um, You know, like it doesn't hurt when you're trying to impress an attractive young lady to have those veins on the bicep pop a little in the t-shirt. And then he greets Rachel, introduces himself, and she runs home with the news that they have family in town. Then his uncle Laban runs out and embraces him and welcomes him home which I'm sure was reassuring to Jacob as he's far from home and probably homesick. So Jacob lives with Laban for the next month, working with Laban's livestock. Uh, Jacob comes from a a family where livestock is the lifeblood of their wealth. And so uh, as a herdsman, as a rancher, Jacob brings a lot to the table. So Laban says, dude, you can't just work for free. What do you want for your wages to be? And Jacob knows right off the bat, no hesitation, Rachel. This dude is smitten for Rachel. She is hot and he is all in on Team Aniston. So he says, I want to marry your daughter. Now, remember, he ran away from um, Esau, who wants to stab him in the face, at the direction of his father saying, here's the location you should run away to, right? And with basically nothing else but the clothes on his back. So he has the birthright, but you can't eat a birthright blessing. And he has nothing to pay the dowry or the bride price with. So he says, I'll work seven years for you. That's a lot more than seven cows in order to finance Rachel's dowry or bride price. So they shake and it's done. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. Tell me that doesn't sound like a line from Princess Bride. As you wish. 
So he, w- he works the seven years and then he goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to make love to her. That's the NIV in case you're wondering. Dude, I love the Bible. Now there is an honest answer <laughs> of a man who has waited seven years. <laughs> give me my wife, my time is completed, I want to make love to her. I love the Bible. So they have the wedding and the feast and the the bride remains traditionally heavily veiled throughout the ceremony in the evening. And Jacob may or may not have imbibed a bit. So they get back home, spend their first night as a married couple. And Jacob wakes up the next morning next to Leah, Rachel's older sister who is weak-eyed. And where Rachel is described as having a lovely figure, Leah's described as being weak-eyed. I don't know, not a strong case for this guy who heard 80s music playing in the background at the well when he saw this girl, man. Like, he, he is mad. So he runs to Laban and says, What is this that was done unto me? Did I not serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Now, this is kind of ironic because remember how Jacob gets the birthright blessing to begin with through deception? But he is not a fan of being duped himself. Seems to be some kind of karma going on here. Laban just says, bro, I can't marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. Serve another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. Jacob really wants Rachel. And so he grudgingly agrees. He finishes his week's worth of honeymoon with Leah, then gets hitched to Rachel too. What could possibly go wrong in this scenario? And then it goes on and says, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Shocking. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, I have five siblings, so I know a bit about sibling dynamics and sibling rivalry. Once one of my brothers took a, a, a piece of metal that was, was tore off a window screen, you know, the like long skinny edge with the sharp triangle where it meets at the corner. Dude, Yeah, he took that piece of metal and threw it into the back of my other brother like a spear. Siblings. Now, now I only have one sister, so I haven't seen sister rivalries up close, but I know they are a real thing. Like women. I just want you to imagine being with your sister all the time as a grown-up human being, in the same house, married to the same man, with a sure knowledge that he loves your prettier sister more than you. Tell me there wouldn't be some drama. Child, please. So what happens next really isn't a surprise. Leah quickly gets pregnant and Rachel doesn't. Now, that would be reason enough for jealousy in the modern world, but it is straight up amplified in their ancient world and in their current situation. So when Leah has her first son, she names him Reuben. The name Reuben literally means look a son. Leah is straight up taunting Rachel here saying, look, I have a son and you don't. How do you like them apples? (laughs) Then Leah has a second boy and names him Simeon, which means hearing, or in other words, God hears my prayers and not yours, Rachel. Then she has a third boy, Levi, which means joined. Basically, the idea is now my husband will be joined to me and not to you, Rachel, because I can actually have kids. And finally, she has a fourth boy, Judah, naming him praise. Praise the Lord. God loves me more than he loves you, Rachel. 
stick it. Yeah. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, surprising, and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. No drama there at all. And that sets Jacob off, who, who says, Am I, I'm not God, I can't control this. So Rachel settles on a solution. She has Jacob marry Bilhah as a third plural wife, and, and Rachel will basically sponsor her. So Bilhah's kids will count as her kids more or less. The ancient world's weird, but you get how this is going. So Jacob marries Bilhah, and Bilhah starts having kids. The first child Bilhah has, Rachel names him, because remember, she's the sponsor, ancient world, etc., etc. But that's not the point. The point is Rachel names this child Dan. And Dan means vindication. Or in other words, in your face, Leah, I had a boy too. And then Bilhah has another son who Rachel names Naphtali, which is a weird name, but it's weird because Rachel has to fit a lot of meaning into one name. His name means, and I'm not making this up, with great wrestlings, have I wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. (laughs) Girl, come on now. Like she names her boy, I have wrestled with my sister and won. Families, man, families. Well, looks like at the the same time, simultaneously after having four boys, Leah isn't getting pregnant. And Rachel's over there bragging um, that she's having kids through Bilhah. And Leah's like, dude, two can play at this game. So she sponsors Zilpah to be Jacob's fourth plural wife. And Jacob, uh, I wonder if he's ever like, oh my heck, this is so stressful. Anyways, Jacob... Um, marries the fourth wife, uh, Leah's surrogate here. And um, Zilpah has a name, has a name. Zilpah has a son and Leah names him Gad. And if you haven't caught on to the theme by now, anyways, you, you shouldn't be surprised. Gad has meaning and it means troop. Like, look, I got so many boys, it's like an army. <laughs> And then Zilpah has another son who Leah names Asher, which means happy. And you're like, oh, sweet. Finally, a a nice name, not a competitive name. And it seems like that until you read why she names him happy. Leah says, happy am I because I have been blessed with so many sons. The dude's sisters. Settle. Well, by this time, the oldest son, Reuben, is old enough to help out in the fields, and one day while he's working out in the wheat harvest, he finds some mandrake plants. Now, um, these mandrake plants are believed to increase fertility, and so his mom wants more kids, so he brings them home to his mom, Leah. Well, Leah hears that, uh, excuse me, when Rachel hears that Leah has some mandrakes, she rushes over and asks for them. And you can hear Leah's straight bitterness in the exchange when she replies, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Huffily, Rachel replies, very well. Jacob can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Dude, family, it's crazy. So Jacob comes in from the field that evening and Leah goes out to meet him and says, you must sleep with me. (laughs) 
<laughs> he hasn't even eaten dinner yet. She says, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Jacob goes and sleeps with her that night. And she becomes pregnant with a boy that she names Issachar, which means recompense. Or basically, my boys are recompense for my husband not loving me. And the bitterness is getting deep here. Sheesh. Then she has a sixth son um, who Leah names Zebulon, meaning honor or exaltation, implying that her troop of boys is what brings her honor. Then she also has a daughter, a daughter named Dinah for good measure, which means her judgment. I'm not really sure with where this slight fits into the ongoing conversation with her sister, but I'm pretty sure it's a slight. Then finally, 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 Rachel gets pregnant and has a son who she names Joseph, which means, and again, I'm not making this up. I will have another son. That's what it means. <laughs> like after years of trying to have a son, the moment she has a son, she names him, I'll have another son. Oh my gosh. Family, dude, family. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, by this time, Jacob has finished the terms of his contract with Laban um, and he wants to return to Canaan. So he asks Laban for his wages. So part of his wages has been his two wives, well, now his four wives through this endeavor. And it has been up to this point uh, after the 14 years, another like six years um, to build up his own personal herds, uh, livestock again, because he's a rancher. That's the family business. And so he asks Laban for his wages uh, to be paid in livestock to return home. Well, Laban keeps changing the type of animals that Jacob can take for his inheritance like spotted, striped, solid. The crazy thing is, whatever Laban says, then the best animals bear that kind of animal. And Jacob just keeps getting richer. But Jacob becomes increasingly irritated by his father-in-law's deception. And again, I gotta say, man, Jacob means usurper, right? Deceiver. What goes around comes around here a little bit. Anyway, Jacob goes to Leah and Rachel and he says, your father has deceived me and changed my wages 10 times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. So he says, that's it, guys. Pack up the kids, pack up all your stuff, let's go. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban and told Laban not that he fled. Well, three days later, remember large herds grazing in different places, Laban finds out that Jacob has taken off. So Laban chases after Jacob and catches up with him about a week later and is livid by this point saying, what hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken by the sword? Strong words here, right? Like this is kind of awkward if you're watching at the side. Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me and didst not tell me? Like, this should have been a celebration and a party. And he's like, and what's more, you stole my idols. Now, here's just a hint at the fact that Jacob traveling clear up to Padan Aram to find a faithful covenant wife may be reading into the text just a little bit. Rachel's clearly coming from a family that is practicing idolatry. And, spoiler alert, it seems like Rachel is kind of in on this, right? 
But Jacob is like, I didn't steal any idols. But truthfully, his favorite shapely wife, Rachel, had taken the uh, idols. Again, not a perfect girl, kind of a spoiled pretty brat girl. And she took the idols with her. I don't know what that's about. I got questions. Anyway, Jacob, sure that the idols aren't with him, says Laban can kill whoever is found with the idols, confident that they're not there. Well, Rachel hides the idols in a camel saddle. Like she takes it off the camel. It's sitting on the ground. She hides it in the camel saddle. And then she sits on top of the camel saddle. And when her dad comes around to check all her stuff, she says, Daddy, I'm sorry. I can't get up. I'm on my period. Dude, the Bible. The Bible, man. The Old Testament is amazing. So when Laban doesn't find the idol, Jacob goes off on his father-in-law like an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. And he yells, what is my crime? How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? I've been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flock. I did not bring you the animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or by night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold consumed me at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my hardship in the toil of my hands. And (laughs) and last night he rebuked you. And on that awkward bitter note they part ways more or less family drama unfortunately that's not the end of the family drama see he's going home which he's excited about but he's also going home to meet his twin brother Esau dude twin oldest brothers there's a whole new level of sibling rivalry Add to that the fact that Esau was dad's favorite and Jacob swindled Esau out of the birthright and blessing the last time they saw one another. Well, Esau was ready to stab, real life, stab Jacob. So needless to say, Jacob is a little, shall we say, apprehensive to go home. But it's really a much more humble man that is coming back home than the man that left. Jacob's prayer to God illustrates this when he says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies, but deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Just the realness and the rawness and the humility here. And following this prayer, or maybe even it's kind of a continuation of this prayer, like Enos, who is going to come later, Jacob wrestles with the Lord for the Lord's favor and blessing, declaring to God, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And God blessed him. And due to this faithful effort, Jacob gets a new name in the process. And these new names are are, are very symbolic in the ancient world. You, you get a new name when you get a new title, a new station, when you kind of level up, kind of a king gets a new name. 
Um, and so his new name is Israel, which means wrestles with God. And I don't know how deep we need to go here. Maybe just a side note, but I like this imagery of engaging with God, wrestling with God. I, I just want you to think about that imagery a little bit. What does it mean to wrestle with God to get a blessing from him? What does it mean to engage with him so deeply, so completely, so fully? Well, shortly thereafter, Esau rolls up and Jacob expects the worst. And so he humbly bows himself to the ground seven times in front of Esau, his brother. But then in a moment of shocking grace, Esau runs to Jacob and embraces him and kisses him and weeps. And then greets his sister-in-laws and his nephews and his niece that he's never met and is overjoyed. Now th- this rift, this re- rift, this relationship that was so fractured and contentious between these twin brothers, like th- this takes a while to mend. Like the, this takes a couple decades to mend. But I, I'm here to tell you that God can do his own work. Trust him in that. If, if there's family relationships that seem to be irreparable, take it to the Lord. Give that to him and trust him to do his work here. And you for your end, you let it go. You forgive, you move on, you trust Now, you may think that that's enough family drama for one day, but I have just a couple more stories for you. See, years pass and they get settled in Canaan and little Dinah grows up and goes into town to see some friends. Well, when she's strolling around the mall, she meets an entitled young prince who assaults her in some pretty bad ways and then wants to marry her. Well, her brothers are pissed. They, they deal with the whole situation with like some, some subtlety. They say back to the, the king, they say, our sister cannot marry anyone who's uncircumcised. And clearly this entitled prince is uncircumcised. So his father, the king, and his spoiled prince of a son get circumcised. And likewise, they have all, all the males of the city, of their city state kind of follow suit. Then on the third day, when all the men of the city are too sore to move, Simeon and Levi, who are Dinah's direct blood brothers, right? You remember all these brothers coming from different moms. These are the two brothers that are Dinah's blood siblings, full siblings. They take their swords, come into the city boldly, and they slay all the males of the city. What? Then the rest of the brothers show up and plunder the city. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, and and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, all their wealth. You, You thought you had family drama. Then adding to this sorrow, Rachel, true to her prophecy, gets pregnant again with another son, but her labor pains were intense and the delivery very hard. And after the son was born, life was slipping from Rachel. She names her second son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. This is heavy stuff. But Jacob calls him Benjamin instead, which means son of my right hand. And you'll, you'll see in future stories, his 
favoritism and some of the drama it causes towards Joseph and then Benjamin, his brother. Then in case you were short on family drama, the oldest son, Reuben, has an affair with Bilhah, one of his father's plural wives. So there you go. If ever there was a no-filter family portrait, it's this one. And you've got to ask, why would the biblical authors go through all the effort to preserve details of such an obviously flawed family? Don't you think we should skip over some of this? Like, I mean, come follow me has you skipping over some of these parts. But here's the point, and make sure this is really clear to you. We're not reading this book looking for superheroes we can follow. The message is not, if I can just be a a bit more like Jacob or Rachel, then I'd be worthy of God. No! If anything, please do not be more like Jacob and Rachel or Leah for that matter. But even if you are, the point of this story is that you're not condemned for it. See, the, the promise doesn't lie in your personal perfection. Or, or your family's loyalty to each other or to God. The promise of salvation, the promise of exaltation, the promise of eternal families is rooted not in you, but in God's long-suffering, never-ending covenant faithfulness. See, what we're saying is, yes, you are broken. Yes, your family is messed up, awkward, and stumbling to one degree or another. And that's okay. Not in that it excuses our failings. But the statement of this story is that we are are saved by God's new and everlasting covenant faithfulness in spite of our failings. We don't get into heaven once our family portrait is flawless inside and out. No, we're we're taken into God's family with blood-stained turtlenecks, athletic socks, and grass-marked khakis and tardy fathers. We're saved by God's covenant faithfulness. So don't you give up. Keep striving. Keep trying. One day, Jesus is out preaching and his brothers, his actual physical brothers, half-brothers, and his mom are outside and they call to him. And the group of people he's with say, hey, your, your mom and, and your brothers are outside and they want you. And he looks around and he says, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him. And he said, behold, my mother and my brethren, he says, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, the moment you entered that that water of baptism, you listened to his invitation to make a covenant with him, you were born again into his family portrait. He's already suffered to redeem us. He already paid the price. Jesus came to save real people. Jesus came to save real families, real screwed up families. That's what he's been doing since the very beginning. That's what this story is all about. And let me tell you, that's what he'll do for you. I promise. But more than me, he promises. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.